A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on Apple or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This series is produced by Authentic, a full service brand and digital marketing studio that specializes in real estate development and leasing. We work with forward thinking developers and property managers to create and then capitalize on demand for their properties. Our team at Authentic is built specifically for the commercial real estate industry, and we plug in every step of the way. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else we should have on the show, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. On this episode, I'm speaking with Eric Kress, Principal at Urban Development Partners, where he concentrates on acquisition, development, and finance. An engineer and designer by training, Eric is drawn to innovative new ideas that make our communities better places to live. As such, he oversees budgets and the acquisition to construction phase of new projects. Before UDP, Eric was a project manager at Pacific Bay Investments in Berkeley, California. Prior to that, Eric managed engineering projects for Cypress Semiconductor, Maple Optical Systems, Leapfrog Toys, and the National Science Foundation. Eric holds eight patents and has published several papers related to his work. He earned an MBA with a focus in real estate finance from the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley, as well as a BS and MS degree in electrical engineering from Mississippi State University. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Alrighty. So Eric, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. I'm excited to be here and for this conversation. Yeah, yeah, it's. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I, I want to get things kicked off by hearing a little bit about your upbringing that ended up meandering between, of all places, Mississippi and Colorado. What was that like? You know, my dad worked for the Department of Defense, the CIA, and DARPA, and that's actually ironically how we ended up in Mississippi. Um, he's a physicist, and he worked as a researcher down in a place called Vicksburg. So I was actually born in Lubbock, Texas, while he was in graduate school. We moved to Vicksburg, Mississippi, which people who are uh, history fans, particularly around the Civil War, will be familiar with Vicksburg, Mississippi. And uh, there's a DOD lab there among a uh, engineering center. And my dad worked there. We were a middle-class family working in, in a town that's on the southern tip of the Mississippi Delta. Really cool. And and it's it's kind of fun because similar to me, you had... Some similar, um, I guess, Colorado roots built in in the early days because my family also went out to Colorado every summer to do hiking, backpacking, camping. And you actually had a really similar experience where you were venturing out to Colorado to check out some different parts of the state than I was. But I think it was around Leadville, and you had you had to, your grandparents actually had a, a small property out there. Is that right? Yeah, my family actually, my great great grandparents homesteaded. In at the base of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains around Westcliff years and years ago. So even though we lived in Mississippi, we for periods we would move back to Colorado. I think my parents missed that part of their heritage. They missed the West. And we were avid outdoors people, backpacking, fishing, things like that. I carry that with me today. In fact, I just got back from a backpacking trip with my daughter here in Oregon and my son a few weeks ago. Uh, so that, that really exposed me to the outdoors and you know the love for the outdoors. Yeah. So you ended up at, I believe, Mississippi State 
And at the time, and, and maybe it still does, you can inform the listeners as well as myself, uh, it had a connection to the National Science Foundation Lab. What were you focused on during those years? Yeah, I'm a product of public education. So uh, I think I got the most out of my education. And uh, that goes from public schools in Mississippi to Mississippi State University, where I started out in engineering school. I was interested in coding and engineering. My dad brought home a computer, and you've heard this story dozens of times so from people in my generation, brought home a computer when I was in elementary school, and I picked up coding and coding magazine. So I was really focused on uh, computer science and engineering at Mississippi State. And, you know, part, I, I imagine there was some, what we probably call pork barreling type of political movement to get a National Science Foundation uh, Engineering Research Center down there, but it was really good for the local economy in Starkville, where uh, Mississippi State is based. And I had the good fortune of working there for a while, got introduced to uh, microchip design. In fact, I wanted, it was something I wanted, had wanted to do for years and got some good exposure to the tech world and was able to parlay that into a job with a, a semiconductor manufacturer design company before I even graduated undergrad. Uh, so it was a really, really actually turned out to be a great experience. Mm. For the listeners that, that are not familiar with microchip design, and I'm assuming that's probably, you know, four out of five, nine out of 10 of us, uh, myself included, I don't know too much about microchip design, but how did you get involved in that? How did you find out that you had a passion for that and you wanted to go learn more about microchip design? Because that's decidedly not, you know, real estate, right? That's not design, architecture, real estate in the sense that we know of your work today. Yeah, it started out as computer science. I just wanted to get deeper and deeper into the technology. I was fascinated by the physical aspects of uh, computers. I was an electrical engineering undergrad, which back then they didn't have that many pure computer science programs. So a lot of times computer science was housed under the electrical engineering program. And I got exposed to the physical aspects of very large scale integrated circuits, is what they call VLSI and application specific integrated circuit design. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's largely working through software and to develop those products when you work on the design side and they, they become a, they turn into a physical manifestation once they get masked and produced. But the, cha- the challenge of it is just, uh, it was just a mystery and I loved in- uncovering the mystery of it all. So you, I guess, and this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, kind of right after school, you entered this phase of further exploration, further growth both in your career, but then, you know, from our previous conversations, I would say also what felt important to you, right? As a, as a blossoming professional, you know, designer, you know, whatever you kind of titled yourself at the time, but, but walk us through those years and, and tell us a little bit more about what those steps were that you took afterwards, because it didn't jump right into design or architecture necessarily. Yeah, I guess my passion evolved into uh, joy for projects and, uh, working on the on microchip projects, they're kind of a two and a half, three year time frame. You know, multi million dollar projects. You work with a team very closely over a period to deliver something, and it's just kind of that. You know, if you're in the sports, it's kind of type two yeah. fun. It's it's kind of hell while you're doing it, but you look yeah. back and you say, "Wow, okay, that was I, I enjoyed that." So I was into yeah. type two fun of grunting through the work and then producing a product and being really satisfied with having gotten through that. Yeah. But I also had a passion for finance, economics, investment. I was, I was very interested in, in that as well. So I decided I wanted to go back to grad school 
went back to grad school. I moved to California and went back to grad school, got an MBA at UC Berkeley. And, and that was my third degree. I actually had a master's in electrical engineering prior to that. So I went back to grad school. And uh, at first, I think the standard path was to explore venture capital. And that's what I did explore initially. And I felt like there was not ex- enough exposure to actual delivery of a product. And, you know, venture capital is associated with entrepreneurship and you work with entrepreneurs. But I found out that really I am an entrepreneur. I like the process, the, the intensity of it. So uh, UC Berkeley has a really strong real estate program. I had the good fortune of working with a, a number of professors, one Ken Rosen on the investment side, Nancy Wallace on the investment side. Uh, Steve Chamberlain was this a very successful developer who taught at the school. And listening to them, learning from them, and I think this happens with a lot of folks who choose their vocation or career, they really kind of fall in love with a uh, profession, but also the, the, their initial exposure to the people who teach them that profession. And what I found is I could do something entrepreneurial. I could work on projects. I could work in the built environment. I could influence the sustainability and the environment of uh, communities, the sustainability of communities, and still work on my projects. And, 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 and working in real estate for the long term, if you're going to survive, you really do need to have a broad understanding of economics, uh, certainly finance, and then legal construction, architecture, all of these things, all those things excited me put together. Yeah. Yeah. Before we jump into the business that you've built at UDP, let's talk about the fact that when you went to to Berkeley, you didn't know what development was, right? You didn't necessarily know what it was a thing that people did. I mean, obviously buildings are built and things are designed, but it's 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 always fascinating to me with, you know, founder stories and and hearing the really early days of how the kind of how the connections were made. And it sounds like for you, that was a really important time period for you to sort of see how all of those things came together between design and finance and some of these other themes. That's really cool to reflect on. Yeah, going into school, I had zero interest in real estate, um, frankly, maybe below zero. (laughs) (laughs) You know, tech didn't relate to that. You know, I probably thought tech was more influential as as I imagine a lot of techies do, being on the forefront of humanity almost is, is kind of the thought of it, of pushing our capabilities forward. And real estate seemed like an old school. And, and my exposure was residential, real, you know, single family home real, real estate. So it really had not even entered my mind until I started school and then really got exposed to these professors and other students that I really enjoyed working with who cared about the built environment, cared about the community, the impact on community the urban landscape. And I just, I fell in love with it. So, so I progressed pretty quickly down that road. Right. And that's become a huge theme for you and the team at UDP. You know, it, 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 from the sounds of it, it wasn't necessarily a straight line coming out of school, you know, going right into exactly what you're doing today, but you certainly had a vision for something that was very ESG focused, even early on. How did you ultimately end up in Portland where you are now doing development? I mean, big, big question, right? But like, what were the steps that got you from Berkeley up to Portland and starting to do a little bit of the work that you are known for today? Yeah, development is a difficult profession to get into. I'll just be frank about that because it is a form of private equity investment and it's very competitive. There are a lot of folks trying to get into it. I had the good fortune of meeting my current business partner at an urban land institute 
conference where I was pretty ac- active with the Urban Land Institute. And it was just a chance meeting, an introduction by another classmate, Danny Rabb. And I kept in touch with Avi. He's my current business partner. And they needed help with a project in Berkeley that they were entitling. So I worked with them to help them on the finance side and the entitlement side to get that uh, project delivered. I was in my second year at grad school, so I had at least some theoretical experience, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And putting a lot of, you know, kind of sweat equity, I guess you caught on the side uh, to help them uh, deliver that project. We had a capital partner who lived in Portland who introduced us to Portland. His name, name is Stephen Pontes. He had a, a wealth management business in Oakland, but lived in Portland. So he commuted back and forth to the Bay Area. And he was always talking about how great Portland is. And I had a young family. Avi had a little bit older, but young family as well. And we were looking for our next move. The Bay Area can be a difficult place to raise a family. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful place. I enjoy the Bay Area, but was looking for what the next move might be. And so Avi and I had just planned to come up to Portland and explore opportunities up here. And after several visits, we just, we just pulled up stakes and came up. Uh, so Stephen, Avi, and I started a, a company here in Portland back in 2006. And it wasn't a, I mean, there was certainly a process involved with that. We worked with a consultant to work on work together and kind of understand what our values and mission would be in starting this company. Stephen and Avi were, Stephen was certainly much more experienced than me. So he knew much more and his guidance really kind of led our launching in a, on a good path. Yeah. One of the questions I was able to ask you in a previous conversation had to do with hitting the ground running in Portland. And you told me you definitely did not hit the ground running in Portland, so to speak. You know, you spent a lot of time figuring out your mission, the company values, kind of the thesis statement for what it was you were trying to do in the Portland area. What were some of those core tenants and kind of the, the, I guess the thought process around coming to a new city, getting all that set up, working with a few trusted partners? Um, what did you go through during that year, year and a half? Yeah, I would say, you know, it's a, it's kind of a startup launch story in some ways. I mean, fortunately for all three of us, this was kind of a second career type of thing. So we had some experience, me working in tech for startups and other companies. For Avi, this was his, his second business startup. And for Steven, also his second business. So they, Steven in particular, had the wisdom to bring in a consultant, a wonderful consultant, definitely uh, high on the smartest people I know list. Uh, Alan Henderson out of Seattle, who's worked with a lot of, a lot of large uh, corporations, has a huge heart, has, has a uh, big sustainability, social focus which was a good fit for the three of us. So we spent a lot of time in his living room up in Seattle working through the, frankly, standard Jim Collins type of work. You know, what's your BHAG? What are your, what, you know, articulate your mission, articulate your values. And through that process, we worked through a lot of things that I think can cause partners to stumble. So in some ways, Alan was also, a, I'd call him a marriage counselor, working through and, and making sure that we were aligned in what we wanted to launch here because it was clear that we were going to be working together. We wanted to do something that was long-term. This wasn't opportunistic type of deal. This was an intentional company that we wanted to build that had impact. And uh, so that was valuable time. And it was timely as well because uh, this is 2006, 2007, coming up to uh, Portland, similar to the Bay Area in a lot of cities. The uh, real estate market was 
inflated and we were having trouble underwriting any kind of any projects. Um, we'd ex- exited or completed a project in the Bay Area as we moved up here. But after that, we were in acquisitions mode in a new city. And honestly, good thing we had that marriage counselor because there's mostly a lot of frustration and trying to figure out what we were going to acquire. Were we ever going to acquire something? I'm the kind of young guy, just hot and heavy to go. Got the, the wisdom there, kind of pushing back a little bit, saying, okay, wait, the time will come. It's not time yet. Uh, so a lot of that first couple of years. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the, those, those first couple of years. So you, you ended up keying in on an area of Portland along Division Street. And for those local to Portland, I mean, it's sort of a no-brainer. It's actually something that I had to educate myself on a little bit more, um, having only visited the city a handful of times. But uh, right around 2008, around the time of all of the kind of uh, crises that are happening across the country, you you tended to key into that area of the city. You were meeting neighbors. You were going to community meetings. Um, before we get too far along into that story, which really brings us to a lot of the great work you've been known for today, tell me a little bit and tell the listeners a little bit about the practice or the process that you call step investing, because I think that that is something that I want to make sure we we hit on and and dovetails in nicely with Division Street and some of the work you've been doing in recent years. Yeah. So personally, I call it step investing. Uh, it's just a acronym for how we approach uh, investment and development. And uh, it starts with smart, working with smart people. And that means people smart and you know, intelligent in all ways, uh, working with the very best people you can and applying them to the business. I really do think that's you know, the number one thing. So we start there. We spend a lot of time in recruiting our own personnel and uh, vetting partners and whatnot and being very careful about who we work with and making sure that we're aligned in, in our mission and our goals, uh, similar to the kind of genesis of the company. So T really uh, represents align- transparency and alignment. So uh, transparent- transparency and alignment are in the DNA of our company. So when we talk about working with capital partners, when we talk about working with uh, landowners, or we talk about working with uh, municipalities and public-private partnerships, uh, transparency and alignment are really part of our religion. We repeat it frequently within our company, and we recruit people who align with that value. And then uh, E stands for enduring. So we've always, really from the start, and if you thought about the foundation of our values and our mission, the E, the enduring piece, would be kind of at the, at the bottom piece. And that's thinking long-term and having a long-term perspective and really res- respecting the fact that the work that we do will have generational effects on the urban landscape. So honoring that, understanding that if, if, it's, if we're not satisfied with the design or something that we're going to put into place, that we'll rip it up and start over because the impacts are going to be generational. And that enduring component overlaps in many ways because our, our feeling is that when you have a long-term perspective, you can align a lot of interests that otherwise don't align and might be adversarial. And that includes community, uh, neighborhood, partner, sustainability, all of those things. When you can put people in a place where they can look out towards the horizon, it inspires them to work together in a different and more productive way, including with capital partners who, you know, real estate is a, is a capital intensive business. So you do have to produce a, a sustainable return in the private market. So those need to endure 
as well. And so that's the last piece is profitable. We need to produce a, a competitive profit for our capital partners in order to continue to capitalize these projects. So for the listeners, again, kind of circling back to this area of Portland, it's Division Street. Um, tell the listeners about that area. And it would be kind of cool, I think, to, to reflect on the then and now of Division Street. So gosh, I guess that would be 15 years ago now, just about what was Division Street like when you were first kind of poking around and having conversations in the neighborhood? And how has it changed almost 15 years later? So one thing that's that is so lovable about Portland, it has all these old streetcar uh, neighborhoods um, and centers that the city has done a really great job of preserving. So when you come to Portland, uh, particularly on the east side, you think about all of these little walkable neighborhood centers that have their local movie theater, grocery store, different coffee shops, amenities, and they're you know maybe twelve blocks or so between them. So there's enough density to support that. And it just makes it a, a wonderful built environment to raise a family. And so we lived in the in the central east side and uh, Division Street was also a streetcar street years and years ago, but it had not been preserved as a uh, kind of center. So what happened is uh, decades ago, you know, Robert Moses type of plan, and I think he was actually consulting on the project. There's a plan to run the Mount Hood Highway right down Division Street. And as part of that process, it, it, there was a condemnation and a slow to the development of the planning, maybe not downzoning, but well, certainly maybe downzoning and, and no zoning. So the street never evolved like some of the other uh, streets that make Portland such a lovely place to live. And I don't want to say it didn't have uh, a lot of uh, wonderful characteristics. I mean, there there's several bars there and other fun little restaurants in there, but not much had happened is mostly kind of auto repair shops and it wasn't very walkable at all. Yeah. I just kind of imagine like um, auto shops, consignment shops, maybe a CD person or two or three or four walking around like a place that you wouldn't necessarily want to like go out, go walk with the kids at that point. Absolutely. So it wasn't uh, necessarily family friend friendly. The way I kind of gauge a neighborhood is if a toddler, if you're walking with a toddler and the toddler can, you know, run 10 yards or as they frequently do five yards ahead of you and you're not, you know, your, your heart rate doesn't raise and it's a good neighborhood and it's a, a walkable neighborhood. And it wasn't that at the time. So, you know, stepping back, we were really, when we entered Portland, we were inspired to really develop and create a neighborhood, transform a neighborhood in a positive way. And so we looked broadly and at the time division street looked like an opportunity. They'd finally kind of recovered from this Mount Hood highway planning debacle and had begun to re-upzone the street to such that it was similar to Hawthorne and Belmont and some of the other beloved streets on in East Portland. So we developed at that point a plan for how we might acquire property and build very, I'd say, uh, community-friendly um, street activation type of projects up and down the street. I spent, you know, well over a year canvassing the street, door-to-door, sending letters, meeting property owners. Uh, going to community meetings, contributing to what they call the Main Street Plan or Division Street. I really got into the weeds uh, with that neighborhood. And one of the, I guess, I, w- I don't want to say one of the areas, but I would say a very main focus, a, a main area of, of focus for you and the team really had to do with the area itself and and some of the 
foundational elements that made the neighborhood a really great opportunity, at least in your eyes, back almost 15 years ago. And, and you had mentioned to me the, the walkability of Division Street, the access to transit. There were established amenities there, even at the time, you know, even if at the time they weren't all the best, you know, in the world. Another thing that you mentioned to me is keeping an eye out for minimal parking needs and, of course, underutilized land. And it seemed like at the time, Division Street really checked all of the boxes for, you know, kind of the core tenets of what you were looking to build through UDP. Is that something that was immediately recognizable to you and the team at the time? Or is it, was it something that you would look back and think of it as a learning process? And maybe there's even a little bit of luck involved that you ended up in this specific spot in Portland? Well, I will say there's always luck involved. <laughs> and one of uh, Jim Collins, one of my favorite ideas from Jim Collins' work is return on luck. And there's always luck involved. Uh, it's easy to kind of brush that to side, but certainly there was luck involved. I think we had a really strong vision. So uh, we did and maybe foolishly slow. So, so we really kind of, we felt pretty strongly that we could get this done and we could create a urban, walkable, lovely, safe area. And any, any project at the neighborhood scale absolutely involves the municipality and the city. It's a partnership. You don't want to try to swim upstream from that standpoint. So the city was certainly behind the type of development we were interested in. They needed, they started to recognize they needed more residential housing. I think they didn't fully recognize it at the time. We certainly did. We felt very, very strongly that there was underproduction of residential housing in Portland, uh, particularly in uh, rental housing. Uh, but they did see a need. So, so they provided zoning for residential development at a neighborhood scale, which checked a lot of boxes for us. The availability of land, there's quite a bit of commercial land available up and down the street that was underutilized. We were one of the first developers, and you could say notoriously so, that were really had a focus on uh, transit-oriented development. Others did, but without parking within the, within the building so that we really targeted residents who also believed in kind of a no parking lifestyle, which you can, it's not Manhattan, but it is possible to live here without a car. Um, There's quite a bit of savings involved. We even uh, employed a a car share program that we had under our ownership, a car that tenants could, you know, rent for, you know, short periods or a couple of days for the weekends shared among uh, a couple of buildings. Um, So it it was really a walkable, a pedestrian, no-car type of lifestyle that we were promoting. Hey listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our company, Authentic, the full-service brand and digital marketing studio specializing in real estate development and leasing. If you weren't aware, I wanted to let you know about how our team adds value to all of your projects. Because Authentic has been architected with the entire real estate development lifecycle in mind, we sit in parallel with your strategy, marketing, rendering, digital, and leasing needs, beginning at day zero. To learn more about how we can help elevate your next project, or to keep existing projects stabilized, visit our website for more information at AuthenticFF.com. Let's keep on that line of thinking, but jump in a little bit more to the ESG-led mindset that you have at the firm, because I think what you're talking about right now really blends into that. And I want to touch on, before we get into some of the projects, specifically kind of rolling back the tape and getting back to your upbringing and your family's homesteading in Colorado, because in a unique way, all these dots kind of 
end up connecting. And I think one of the reasons why you're so focused on ESG is because of your family background and the history there. And I think that ties into what we're talking about now with you know, car sharing programs, for example, just as one example. But paint that picture for the listeners. Where does that piece come from for you? Yeah, visiting Colorado, my exposure to... We didn't call it real estate, real estate development at the time. But <laughs> you can imagine a family that has a long history in you know, Colorado or Montana or Arizona or anywhere and seeing it become more dense and developed. Their reaction to development is not always positive. Certainly, my family, my grandparents had a big problem with uh, greenfield development, developing homes in uh, beautiful, you know, mountain pastoral and mountain landscapes um, that they missed when they were gone. So when I started looking at development, I had a hard time. I, you know, there was an internal tension to like, how, how does this seems like a great profession, but I have a visceral negative reaction to greenfield type of development just because of my upbringing and the passion that my family had for uh, preserving um, that rural landscape. So for that, that meant a couple things. One, urban, vertical, transit-oriented housing um, and development was a core tenet of ours. I wasn't going to do anything else that really violated my personal values to do so. And I think second, having grown up with a family that reacted to development in that way, um, even though as a youngster, I didn't understand it as real estate development, but reacted to uh, development in that way, led me to be particularly sensitive to the communities and the community's needs and their reaction to our work. So um, when we came into Portland, we started working on Division Street. We went door-to-door, literally door-to-door, inviting neighbors to come to design charrettes, to get their feedback, to understand what their needs were, what their concerns were. And certainly there are folks that did not want to see more people in their neighborhood. And However, we found that there were many who really appreciated the conviction around good quality transit-oriented design. These were lead platinum buildings, so sustainable buildings uh, on their street. And so we got a lot of support and, re- and positive response from that. And, you know, they say ownership is nine-tenths of the law. These are neighbors who live in that area. So we, we certainly need to make a room for affordable housing. But in that process, we also need to be able to listen to the people who have been there before us and kind of understand their concerns and do our very best to address those concerns. No, I mean, it makes perfect sense. And okay, so I would say with that setting the stage, then I'd love it if you gave the listeners a brief tour, so to speak, of a few of the properties that you're really proud of. Aesthetically, of course, because I think the the listeners can can Google them, look them up. We'll have some show notes um, that have links to these properties. But also from that community building perspective and through the lens that you just set forth. I have my cheat sheet here in front of me of a, of a few of those properties, but um, why don't we start off with the property that's called Slate and just kind of give us, I don't know, like a two, three minute kind of recap of, of what that project's all about. Yeah. So Slate uh, started out as a essentially a public-private partnership with Portland. They had some land at the Burnside Bridgehead on the east side. Uh, so the Burnside Bridge crosses the Willamette. And the Willamette separates West Portland from uh, East Portland. And West Portland was uh, is where the Central Business District is. And East Portland is where a lot of these kind of streetcar neighborhoods are. They have some in West Portland as well. But 
And the city owned the property. They sold the property to us. They had a vision for uh, transit-oriented development there. We were an experienced and our experienced residential developer. And we have a really, I would say, really strong uh, design uh, focus. So we respect the fact that... Uh, and I think one thing we learned early on, if I step back, we've done a lot of adaptive reuse and kind of his- work with historic buildings. And one thing we discovered when you work with historic buildings is you can have a you know, bunker of a building, high quality materials, but poor design, and it can lose value pretty quick. You know, they just become functionally obsolete. And then on the other side, you can have these enduring, really well-designed buildings that have built with flexible, they're interesting to look at, they're beautiful to be in, and they can deteriorate over the years and still be brought back to life and retain a lot of their value just because the design was solid. So we developed a really strong respect for high quality design. And for us, that means uh, interesting to look at, you know, it's a form of art. Um, You're building an urban landscape, but also uh, refreshing and wonderful to be in. The experience of the the tenant, uh, the resident, the commercial business needs to be a, a positive. And, you know, the design extends beyond the actual building itself and into the neighborhood. So uh, we'd like to think of the neighborhood and how the building fits into the neighborhood as a core component of the design because the occupants of the building, their experience certainly includes their experience in the approach uh, to the building as well. So how does that fit in? And, and that leads into how we, you know, like I said, with the vision tree, it was important for us to have a, an element of influence uh, around on the neighborhood so that we could kind of create, uh, create a holistic. We, you know, we we wanted to, you know, exercise a holistic approach to development. So it's not just about the building; it's about all that surrounds the building. So uh, Slate is a uh, architecture firm, very talented uh, principal there named Carrie Strickland. Uh, works progress architecture. Some people will call her uh, their work, you know, architectural porn um, because they do a lot of buildings that are very interesting to work at, uh, look at, and we've done. A lot of work with them. Slate was one uh, that we did, and it has these interesting uh, apertures uh, in the way the windows sit within the building. Uh, the street wall is well articulated. And a couple things that uh, we were able to achieve with that. One is, uh, again, it's a beautiful building to look at, but also interiorly, there's interior, in, interior of the building, the street wall is really broken up where we were able to bring light and air into the building. We actually have uh, landscape above, up above, off of the uh, street level, trees, things like that, that, you know, when you look at, make you wonder. <laughs> and that's that theme of, of bringing the kind of the activity on the street into the buildings or welcoming activity on the street into the buildings extended, extends into this second project, which was or is 3330 Southeast Division. And I want to say, so I did some quick sleuthing and Google researching in preparation for this podcast, but I believe it's called Anthology on Division. I hope I didn't get that wrong. But there's there's a similar design element to that property as well, right? Where there's a kind of a portal that goes from the street into, I think you would call it a an inner sanctuary. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So getting back to Slate, we provide access to the city, a three-way path on our property to get closer to the river, open landscaped area that is accessible to the public and very visible to the public. 3330 Division or the Anthology on Division, that was an earlier project where we really kind of refined that the interface 
with the public and between the public and the private in an urban uh, vertical building. So in that case, we provided a number of uh, essentially portals into, uh, I think you articulated well, inner sanctuary where there's a fireplace, there's uh, bamboo and, and landscaping. It's quiet. It's uh, beautiful. The residents kind of look can look down on that inner sanctuary so it feels safe because they know what's going on down there, but also the public has access to it. And, you know, during the design process, there was discussion about, you know, closing that off or gating that area off so that it was more private. And we we squelched that conversation pretty quickly because it was really against our, you know, again, another tenet of our belief around, you know, the for our buildings, we feel like the core amenity is the neighborhood. So we want to promote that the fluidity of the interface between the private and the public of our buildings. One more before we start to wrap up. Tell us about District Office, the project called District Office. Yeah, District Office is a uh, cross-laminated timber, uh, mass timber building that we completed about three years ago. It's a material that we explored for a number of years. We had a few false starts uh, with designs. And uh, finally, everything came together with District Office. It's a beautiful post and beam, you know, wood mid-rise building, six stories. And if you're in it, you know, you're surrounded, you know, you get that benefit of the natural biophilia. We have uh, really light and air. It was an important component of it. So we have these really, really large slider windows that can open up a whole floor. One thing that's nice about the CLT, cross laminated timber panels, is that you can remove a panel and provide access from one floor to the next. So it works really well for offices where you've got uh, expansion into uh, multiple floors, but you want to create the, um, you know, kind of an access and nice segue from one floor to the next. And of course, it's a sustainable material. I mean, it's a, a carbon sequestration material. The All of the lumber was harvested and the CLT produced right here in Oregon, you know, within 100 miles or so of the actual building. Uh, so it was an exciting product, project to experiment with and to complete. And it won't be our last. Uh, we love the material and are looking forward to more uh, CLT projects in the future. Yeah, and and like I mentioned, we we will be sure to have links to all these properties slash projects in the show notes. So if you're curious about any of these, take a look there and and, and go uh, feast your eyes on some some great design and, and architecture execution. Eric, before we uh, wrap up once and for all, I want to give you this just drop this big question on your lap because I know it's um, it's something that you love to eat up. I, I would. You know, after hearing you talk about those three projects and some of your background, I'd love to just get your your thesis and, and leave the leave the listeners with your thesis on what you feel like great design is, what you think great development means, and and like how that actually plays out for you and your projects from that very first touch point. So I know that's a lot, but I know it's a question you like to tackle. So let me let me put the mic over to you and see what you think about that one. Yeah, thank you for the question. I I think it starts with long term. I mean, these are long term impacts on these neighborhoods. So you really just have to think about and and acknowledge the impact of the built environment and, and, and what you're doing. And that that plays into sustainability. You know, create a design that will uh, serve the community for you know 100 plus years. You know, work with a design that will serve the community 100 plus years. Think about the neighborhood and their immediate impacts to the neighborhood. And sometimes, you know, where you end is influenced by very much by where you start. So you don't want to just kind of 
disrupt what's already built. I mean, they're historical assets within every neighborhood and you uh, need to study those and respect those and have those historical treasures really inform what you're doing with the neighborhood. So for instance, we have a building called Almer built in Northwest Portland. I am not a fan of new structures that you know, kind of allude to older structures or look like older structures. But in this one sense, it was a historical neighborhood. We built a, a new building in a historical neighborhood and it won a, an Art Demero Award, which is a local award for historical construction and redevelopment. And it was the first building, first new building to ever win that award. Um, so that's an example of really kind of, you know, it had to murder a darling in that, from that standpoint, because I like modern design and I just had to, you know, swallow my pride and, and really lean into a, a historical design uh, for that building. And I'm really proud of what we did there. It's a beautiful building. It had a great interface with the street. Um, we preserved a beautiful elm tree that the uh, community can, uh, can enjoy within a little plaza area. Uh, we've done similar things on other buildings. So respecting the, the current environment and letting it inform the future while also thinking long, long term, that means responding to the community, the community needs. And then uh, finally, also part of that long term is just do something interesting. Every building doesn't have to be interesting. You know, there's a certain part of the ur- urban fabric that does not need to be articulated with a cutting edge design, but uh, certainly uh, the impact on neighborhoods of interesting buildings is real. People are drawn to it. Uh, our, you know, we all seek a sense of awe and wonder, and we can do that through the built environment by creating that mystery and awe and wonder. Um, so, and, and, that, and that's, you know, comes from good design. So looking ahead, what are you most excited about across the real estate and or development industry as you kind of start to peek around the corner in the coming months and years? You know, it's something I inquire about frequently. I think about a lot. I don't think the killer app for development has been built yet. There are certainly a lot of there's certainly a lot of uh, research and effort going into that, whether it's, you know, 3D, built, 3D printed buildings or uh, modular buildings. I'm excited for cross-laminated timber and what we can do with that in terms of both sustainability, kind of closing the divide between uh, the, rural, or the rural and the urban, you know, forestry and urban environment and just the experience that it provides. But it has a little ways to go. We have a few iterations. So let me, uh, let me hit you with a couple of rapid fire questions here. Number one, most exciting project you've seen in the last year? Tough question. Yeah, I think um, I'll uh, make a shout out to Elon and company. I toured a building that they did here in downtown Portland called the PAE Living Building. It's a groundbreaking building. They were able to employ a number of cutting edge technologies, uh, including you know waste management, renewable energy in multiple forms that they use cross-laminated timber, uh, really cutting edge in a, in a number of ways. I'd say it's not scalable at this point using private capital, but uh, that's where you, that's where that um, where innovation starts, you know, pushing the envelope. And if you're able to draw investment that is willing to take that kind of risk and push the envelope and, 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 and almost certainly their impacts to the returns that eroded to some degree in in order to achieve these lofty goals. But over time, those, those costs can be brought down to you know, something that's reasonable and can be brought to the private market. So I'm always inspired by folks who are able to uh, bring those projects to bear. And then 
if I can uh, make a shout out for one of our own projects, it's not up yet in Lake, downtown Lake Oswego. We have a public-private partnership there called the North Anchor Project that I'm excited about. It's a, a co-located multifamily building in Boutique Hotel. Uh, the city has wanted to redevelop that downtown for years and years. So we're excited about the possibility there to um, you know provide a little bit of density to what is a, a high-end, uh, nice suburb of Portland. Provide some housing and really provide a, you know, an amazing experience uh, through this boutique, you no know, hotel and restaurant um, to those residents. Yeah. All right. One book that you would recommend right now. <laughs> that is such a hard question for me. I read a lot of books. <laughs> I like books. Uh, so that's what I do with my free time. I will say that uh, most interesting book I've read recently, and it's really around investment, old school investment. You know, the original word for investment, not stock investment, but investment is Andy Duke's thinking in bets. I studied stochastic processes and cryptography in graduate school, which I really enjoyed. And part of that was the study, uh, you know, stochastics is the study of random systems. And I love uh, Andy Duke's application of essentially stochastics to the real world, everyday world in, in important and really important ways in terms of decision making. And it's an accessible book. It's a useful book and it's an entertaining book. Like I said, I'm, I'm going to cheat and just say, you know, Jim Collins' <laughs> work uh, for us is really important in terms of building a company and building a culture. And then really a couple of the, the books I probably recommend more than any other are outdoor books like uh, The Emerald Mile is a book I love. And uh, Very American cool. Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. The The cool thing is there's only one more thing for me to do. So I'm off the hook and that is to roll out the red carpet for you. Tell the world what you're up to and where they can find you online and follow up and, and start a conversation. Yeah. So our company is Urban Development Partners. You can find us at udplp.com. Also feel free to look me up on LinkedIn, Eric Kress with Urban Development Partners. Uh, you'll see links to our projects understand what we're up to. We'll probably roll out something like the, the workbench or something like that, where we can kind of show you what, what kind of uh, research and, and planning we're doing uh, for uh, pushing the envelope in our own right as we go forward. Yeah. Fantastic. Eric, thanks again. Thank you. I appreciate it, Chris. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic, the full-service brand and digital marketing studio that specializes in real estate development and leasing. Visit us online at AuthenticFF.com. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com slash podcast or simply subscribe through your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. <laughs>